Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought it out to them and offered to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord! I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. 
But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. That, that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and all other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abazarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time... Make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerobal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, 
there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as the man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Sererah, as far as the border of Abel Meherah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Ormanasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, 
come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Bethbara. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Bethbara. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is God's word. Thanks, Judith, for reading that. Hopefully you stuck with us during those two uh, chapters. Uh, great to see you all here. My name's Tom Woodbridge. I'm part of the uh, staff team here at Inspire St. James, helping to oversee the university students' work and also our uh, Midweek City Workers uh, ministry as well. And if you're joining us for the first time uh, for a number of weeks, we're five weeks into this series in Judges, as Kerry said at the start. Broken lives, broken heroes. And this week, I think we pretty much find a broken hero, don't we? Here's Gideon, who finds it so hard, it seems, to trust in God. No less than seven times in the two chapters that we just read do we find Gideon doubting in God's promises or afraid of what might happen. I wonder if you notice them. For example, verses 13 and verse 15, when he responds to God very politely, pardon me, my Lord, but dot, dot, dot. I just don't know. I'm not sure. Can you show me? I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen. Here's someone who repeatedly needs the reassurance from God that he can trust in him in the midst of the doubts and his weaknesses. And maybe as we read through the account of Gideon, uh, maybe you found yourself relating to Gideon maybe more than you first realized. Because if you're anything like me, I can find myself in church on a Sunday and I sing the songs and so as we sung right at the start, great is thy faithfulness. And yet as I leave this place and as I live my life Monday through Saturday, I find it so hard to trust in God for all the situations I find myself in. Maybe you find it at work. What am I doing in this job? Is this where you want me to be? I don't have a job. What do you want me to do, God? There's threats of redundancies in the office. What's going on? Maybe it's at home. Financially, it's tight. Struggling to pay the bills or the rent or just what the children want. God, what's going on? Maybe it's relationships. I wonder how you found this week. How you find Valentine's Day. I wonder what that's like for you. Maybe a great time. Maybe such a tough time. God, I hate being single. Will I ever find someone? Is this one the one? Maybe it's your Christian life. God, I, I just want to grow. I, I hate doing that thing that I keep on doing, but I don't seem to be able to stop doing it. Lord, are you there? Are you helping me? Maybe you're here this afternoon and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're looking into the Christian faith and you're just trying to work out, what do I make of this God? Is he worth believing in? Is he worth trusting in? 
Well, it's a long passage, two chapters, and loads goes on in these two chapters. And so whilst we won't be able to look at everything in depth, hopefully as we look at the ways that Gideon struggled to trust in God, well, hopefully we will be able to see a God who we can completely trust and a God who is strong in the midst of our weaknesses. And so to give us a little bit of context of what's going on in the passage before we meet Gideon, if you've been with us throughout the series, the passage starts in very familiar circumstances. The cycle continues. And so from end of chapter 5, from the peace in the land for 40 years, chapter 6, verse 1, the Israelites do evil. And so God gives them in, gives them over into the hands of the Midianites, verse 1. And here we actually get quite a detailed description of the depths of the oppression that they faced under the Midianites. The Israelites are driven back to live up in the mountains and the caves. And every time they plant their crops, well, the Midianites just come and kick them down. They bring their livestock in to continue the devastation. It's a horrible situation. It's almost like the older brother on the beach kicking down the sandcastle that the younger brother's just finished. Except this isn't just games on a beach. This is real life for the Israelites. And so, verse 6, they cry out to the Lord for help. And yet, slightly different to usual, instead of God responding by sending a deliverer, he sends a prophet to give them a message. God wants them to know before the deliverer arrives why it is they keep, up end, keep ending up in this continuous cycle. End of verse 10. But you have not listened to me. You have not listened to me. And yet, in God's wonderful grace, he does raise up a deliverer. God appears to Gideon, and pretty much as soon as he appears to Gideon, and so the doubts appear in Gideon. And so as we work our way through these two chapters, uh, we're going to highlight three doubts that come out throughout these events. Here's the first one. Doubt number one, God's not there. God's not there. God appears to Gideon and he gives him two wonderful promises. Unfortunately, they're met by two doubts from Gideon. Have a look down. Promise number one, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And very quickly followed by Gideon's doubt, Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? No, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. I wonder if you ever find yourself saying something similar to Gideon. I mean, if you're anything like me, it's probably not quite as polite as Gideon. You're with me? Really? What about when I feel so isolated at work as the only Christian in the office? What about when I receive news of a friend who's in hospital? 
or a friend who's just been diagnosed with cancer? What about when I feel so lonely, when the darkness seems to be closing in and, and the depression or anxiety kicks in? When I'm feeling so under pressure with things going on at home or at work? What about when the sin that I'm so tempted to do creeps up on me and I, I just can't resist it? You're with me? Where are you, God? You see, Gideon struggles to see where God is. It feels as if God's abandoned them. And how does God respond? Well, with promise number two, verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Yet as quick as the first time, Gideon's doubt returns to verse 15. Yeah, right, Gideon says. You've definitely got the wrong person now. I mean, you, you couldn't even choose a worse person. Weakest clan in my tribe. Least in my family. It's a bit like picking the, the university challenge team or the pub quiz team based on the worst school grades. Or the person who's always picked last in the sports team actually getting picked first. It doesn't happen. In fact, if you're serious about winning, it shouldn't happen, it cannot happen. It's almost as if God has got some kind of mental block. He's looking for his deliverer, and he ends up with Gideon. How could God pick bottom of the class, worse in the sports team, Gideon? Well, it's because of the reality of promise number one. As God reminds him in the next verse, verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. You see, this promise changes everything. It's the promise that Gideon needs to hear. It's the wonderful promise that has rung out throughout the Bible. It's almost as if it's God's trump card in the face of unwilling or resistant people. When Moses isn't sure in Exodus chapter 3, God reassures him, saying, I will be with you. After Moses' death, and there's the whole of his leadership, so God reassures Joshua, as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. And so it is to Jacob in Genesis chapters 28 and chapter 46. So it is to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 20. It enables David to sing in the famous Psalm 23, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It encourages Paul to remain in Corinth in Acts, 20, in Acts 18. In fact, so often the promise is, do not be afraid because I am with you. And it's the promise that rings out for us too. As Jesus appears to his disciples and sends them out with the Great Commission, so the same promise is to us today in Matthew 28. Jesus' final words, as recorded by Matthew. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And so every time... I go out and I step into the changing room in my football club 
the only Christian in the team, thinking, how, how am I going to live my faith out today? Looking to use any opportunity to say something of Jesus to my teammates. Thinking, where are you, God? Thinking, send someone else. Send someone bolder. Send someone more clever who knows how to answer their questions. As I step in, so does God right beside me. God chooses to use Gideon. How, does, how is he able to use weak, bottom of his family, Gideon, and call him a mighty warrior? Because of anything in him? No, Gideon himself knows it's got nothing to do with him. But because God is with him. God's not there? No, be assured. Be comforted. God is always with you. He will never leave you. No, he loves you far too much to do that. Doubt number one, God's not there. And then, very quickly, we see doubt number two. God's not good enough. And so once Gideon, uh, God has appeared and tells Gideon he's going to use him, he calls him to create a bit of a storm in the town because the reality is people think God's not good enough. You see, if God is to use Gideon and if Gideon is to follow God, then he needs to get rid of any other gods who may be competing for his attention. Have a look down from verse 25. God says to Gideon, tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it, the wooden symbol to the goddess. Get rid of it. Replace it with an altar to the Lord. In fact, use the wood of the Asherah pole to get the fire burning for your burnt offering. And so Gideon does, except his fear kicks in and he does it at night in fear of the reaction, in fear of anyone who might see him. And the people aren't impressed. In fact, their worship of Baal is so much that Gideon must die for his actions. And yet, if you see Joash's re reaction, Gideon's father, verse 31, but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. You're fighting for Baal? You're pleading his case? Come on. If Baal really is the god that you worship, don't you think he can defend himself? God wants Gideon to know that he cannot serve two masters. And so Gideon needs to ruthlessly get rid of any other gods. You see, they stand there big and tall, promising hope and answers. And yet, they can't even defend themselves. And so we sit here, 2019, looking back at the Israelites, and so we say... Oh, silly little Israelites, and their idols of stone and wood. And yet the danger is we end up doing exactly the same thing. And, and, and sure, maybe not idols of stone and wood, 
but idols nonetheless. Created things that become important, all important in our lives. The career that we strive for and make our whole lives about because we believe that's what will give us meaning. The money that we want because we think, well, that will solve all our problems. The status and the reputation we would love to have amongst our peers and those around us. Relationships, sex, that we think that will make us feel good, that will fulfill us. Comfort, that means we can just enjoy life. We don't need to be stressed or worried about what might happen, we just need comfort. And so be on your guard. Because the really dangerous thing about idols is that so often, in and of themselves, idols can be good things. They may not be a bad thing. Often they are God-given gifts to us. And yet they lie to us, trying to convince us that they can give us something that God cannot. They say, trust me, follow me, give your life to me, and I can give you that satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment that you desire. And so whilst the idol in and of itself might not be sin, so quickly our attitude to it can be. We make it a bigger thing than God. And so just as Baal worship had become for the Israelites, it takes our eyes off God because we think that God isn't good enough. He cannot deliver like these other gods can. We take a good thing and we end up making it a God thing, the ultimate thing. I wonder how this could work out in your life. Maybe career, work, a good God-given thing. And yet, we can slowly and quickly believe that if we give our whole life to it, we believe that it can bring exactly what we need. A status and reputation that we create amongst the peers in the office around us. Our friends as we meet up with them in the pub afterwards. Our families, we tell them what we do at the big family gatherings. If we make our lives about our career and we work up the ladder, well, that, that will bring us the money that we so crave because it allows us to buy the things that will make us happy. Or it brings us the comfort and protection in, in, in later years. Career says, trust me, I can give you what you need. God's not good enough to provide for those things. God's not good enough need to look to other things to take the place of God, to give us the things that God can't? No. God is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the creator of the things that we take from him and quickly elevate to be higher than the status of God. In fact, God's so good, we need not be afraid of people's reaction as we look to take a stand against the idols in our lives. And so... Will we take idol worship seriously? It happened back then for the people of Israel. It happens everywhere in the world around us. And the danger is it can happen in our lives too. I wonder what are the things that you can be in danger of elevating from a good thing to a God thing? 
don't do it. God is good enough. And so once Gideon gets rid of the idols, he gets ready to call the people of Israel, getting ready for battle. And yet, before we get to battle, well, Gideon doubts again. And so we have the account of Gideon's fleece, where he needs proof once again, if not twice again, that God is with him. And let's be careful with this account, not to make the mistake that of thinking that this is some kind of God-approved way of making decisions. That this is the way to seek God's will in our decisions or work out the course of action for anything. Don't be, don't be heading home and grabbing your fleece and laying out tonight. No, whilst Gideon in his weakness does lack faith, we need to be aware of and learn from it. Because in his lack of faith, he isn't seeking a guidance over decisions, but assurance that God is with him. And so he therefore will, verse 36, save Israel by his hand. And so this is a lesson, not to copy in order to make decisions, but to learn from so that we don't make the same mistakes. And so finally... As we move into chapter 7, we encounter the next doubt. A third doubt, God's not powerful enough. God's not powerful enough. Gideon and his men get ready for battle, verse 1. But God decides the army's too big. Why? Well, here's the key verse, verse 2, to help us understand what's going on here. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. God wants to make totally sure that the Israelites know that it is God who wins this battle for them. That there is no chance at all that they can come home from battle thinking, hey, we did well today. It was all down to us and what we did in battle. And so he cuts down the men. First from 32,000 down to 10,000 by getting rid of those who were afraid of fighting, which is probably no bad thing. And yet God decides we're still not small enough. Let's get rid of more. And so he cuts it down further through this episode of sending them to drink from from the water. He separates those who pick up the water in their hands and brings it to their mouths from those who kneel down and put their heads down to the water. And there's many who try and look into it and work out why has he chosen that group over this group. And we need to be really careful not to read something into it that isn't there. But for whatever reason, God chooses the 300. Maybe he chooses the smaller number just so that it is the smaller number. So there is no doubt who wins this battle. But 300 we have, less than 1% of the original 32,000 men. And yet, God reassures Gideon again, verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. And again in verse 9, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. And you would have thought by now that Gideon's ready to trust in God, but no, the doubt comes back. 
After everything God has demonstrated, he needs further reassurance. And so he heads down into enemy territory and overhears the interpretation of a dream that God will deliver them into the Israelites' hands. And finally, Gideon is convinced, verse 15. He bows down and he worships God. And it's time for battle. And yet, I wonder if you noticed, even as they got ready for battle and even as the battle kicked off, it was still all God's work. All the Israelites do is head to the edge of the camp, verse 19. They blow their trumpets and they hold their torches, verse 20. And they hold their positions, verse 21. And the Lord does the rest, verse 22. He causes the men to turn on each other and to flee. Again and again and again and again, God shows that he is in in charge, that he's the one that will bring the victory, that Gideon can totally trust in him, that we can totally trust in him. And he makes it so obvious. He chooses such an unlikely hero. It cannot have anything to do with him. He whittles the army down to 300. It cannot be anything to do with the numbers. He doesn't even use them to get the battle going. It cannot be anything to do with their strength or their fighting prowess. God chooses the weak to beat the strong. It's how he works. He chooses Gideon from the weakest tribe, the least in his family. And it was seen in possibly the greatest show of weakness, being the show of God's greatest strength. As Jesus, the Son of God, hung on that cross, limp, defeated, nailed, dead, seen as massive weakness to those around him. And yet, it was in this weakness that God shows his strength. It was this weakness that he uses to defeat his enemies, to overcome the sin. And so it continues today. God calls us to be weak so that he may be strong. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he speaks of this thorn in the flesh that he was experiencing and pleading with God that he might take it away. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I wonder if you came to church this afternoon feeling weak, helpless in some way. Great. That's exactly what God is looking for. But don't ever see your weakness as a weakness. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But it's exactly what God is looking for. Paul goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God uses weak people like Gideon so that we may see his strength in action. So will you be weak? What does it look like to be weak then? Well, we have to be weak in order to be saved. 
We need to admit that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And so ask Jesus to do it all for us. We need to be weak every time we come back to God and to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness because we continually need to admit our mistakes and our weaknesses. And in fact, as we do that and realize our weakness, so we rejoice as we see the depth of God's wonderful grace. And we need to be weak in order to continue to keep on growing. Because often the way that God helps us to grow is to show us the idols that we have up in our life and telling us to take them down and to remove them. In fact, sometimes he goes and removes them for us. And so we can be left helpless, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go. And so in our weakness, we need to throw ourselves on God and depend on him. We see it here in this, in this episode with Gideon. Israel could be tr- tempted to trust in the power of their mighty army. And so God takes it away down to 300. God's not there. No, he promises to be with you always. God's not good enough. No, don't go chasing after the things of this world as they try and tempt you to believe that they can give you more than God can. God's not powerful enough. No, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So can we trust him? You bet we can. Let me pray for us that we may trust in our great God this week. Father God, thank you for how you used Gideon. Thank you for how you showed yourself to him and helped him to trust in you, even in the midst of his doubts and weakness. And Father, will you continue to use us? Help us to trust, to know that you are always with us. Help us to trust and to know that you are good enough. And help us to trust and to know that in our weakness, so you are strong. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.